0: Welcome to another episode of Daily Theology, episode 24. I'm your host, Mike Avery. Hope everyone's having a good summer. Our guest today is Dr. Suzanne Schultz of Southern Methodist University. To start, we discussed her progressive gymnasium teacher that majorly influenced her pursuit into entering theology, and her run-in with starchy conservative professors in graduate school. This discussion later goes into such topics as rape in the Hebrew Bible, feminist hermeneutics, and in the grim fairy tales. To end, Dr. Schultz reveals with glee her love for Star Trek and wears the title of Trekkie proudly. A couple of announcements. Daily Theology is now running a VBS series this summer, so please check that out on the blog. And we also have two new editors, Jessica and Ben. Welcome to the team, guys. As always, tweet at us or comment on the blog. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback. We'll be running some more episodes this summer, and thank you so much for listening. Alright, welcome to another Daily Theology Podcast. This is my second interview at SMU. Today our guest is Dr. Suzanne Schultz, professor of Old Testament at, at Southern Methodist University. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Lolly is a friend of mine, and although I was kind of much, much older in the program at St. Edwards University, she told me to, to contact you and you know, see if she'll you'd be willing to do the podcast. And I, and I it sent a couple other emails out, and you were one of the people who responded back. So oh, really? okay. I wanted to give her a shout out and say, Lolly, thank you so much for setting this up. One of the questions we st- always start with is, how did you come to know theology? What inspired you to take on this path?
1: It's a big question, and there are various ways to answer this question. Uh, one is a pious one, and it's like a call of God. You know, I'm following my, my calling. Then there's a more secular one, and that's maybe appropriate as well because uh, when I grew up in Germany, maybe to this very day, there is not much religion. In fact, I never had religion in my schooling. And at home, my parents rejected religion. They grew up in a very pious home, both of them. And they, they, in post-Holocaust Germany, West Germany that, you know, religion has no place and they don't want to do anything. But then we had the grandmas and they were sometimes praying with us and stuff like that. That was sort of like, I mean, I, I'm of course baptized. Everybody mm-hmm. is kind of baptized. That's sort of like a function that's you, that you're doing. But I grew up basically not going into any religious organization And so why am I not actually teaching at a seminary? It's kind of uh, a big leap. I cannot see the point.
0: In in Texas, too.
1: In Texas, yeah. (laughs) Well, Dallas proper, as I like to say. Um, Yeah, Texas, oh my. Uh, So this can't be summarized that quickly, although I can try to... Uh, bring in a few points for All you, right. okay? Yeah, let's do that. And, and uh, as I always like to say, I had a crucial teacher in gymnasium in my high school in Germany who was teaching religion, and he didn't get a job at the university, and so he was, uh, he had a doctorate and was highly educated, and so he taught. Mysteriously, we suddenly had the opportunity to take a religion class, and so I did, and he... he, he communicated that you can actually study this stuff (laughs) and and that is also interesting because the way he did it was he did psychology with us he did history with us, sociology he did feminist theology you know that was kind of amazing that uh, many of the books that were written in feminist theology today weren't written at the time and no less were they uh, translated into german Um, so he did this and that gave me the idea wow, I want to do this, you nice. know. And I went to the university in Mainz, at the University of Mainz in Germany, and enrolled in the theology department there, and that was a shock, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that was so different from anything that he had done. Wh- it, you know, wh- different,
0: la- different in what way?
1: Well, the way my teacher, his name is Peter Sauer, and I actually um, mention him in one of my books, um, a dedication, and... Um, And I've seen him since like two or three years ago. We Mm. had coffee in a nice cafe in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany. He was a progressive theologian who connected theological studies with the world. And then I went to, that's now my analysis, okay? Mm. Uh, Then I went to the University of Mainz in the Protestant theology department. And suddenly there were all these old men and (laughs) they were doing nothing related to the world. That was that was the shock, you know.
0: So you went into somewhat of a theological bubble you had that you didn't understand.
1: That I had never encountered. <laughs> that I had no idea that this is what it is, mm-hmm. you know, and so I sought out those uh, professors who connected. Theological studies with the world because, and we're working in an interdisciplinary fashion because this was, after all, what drew me into it to begin with. Of course, my entire family of origin at the time was in deep shock that I even did this because, although my grandmother had always dreamt she would have a son or a daughter becoming a pastor. Uh, they had all rejected it. I suddenly stood up and out of the blue to them said, you know, this is what I want to do. And then, you know, this was sort of a key moment. I would say if I hadn't met this teacher of mine, I would have never known. Uh, or, or maybe something else would have happened. Who knows? You know, if you have a calling, <laughs> it, it is communicated to you in various ways.
0: When you're in the this newer program and you kind of have the old voices of, you know, that are in a bubble. Do you feel that you, it was like there was a religious divide rather than an academic one? Or like, was it both in, in a way?
1: Well, it depends how you define religious. You know, I would say it is basically a difference between how you live in the world and how you think about the world. Mm. It, it's not necessarily divide. It's not religious. I would say maybe it's religious political mm. um, because your theological Convictions are related to your political convictions. And so the more progressive uh, theologians, they connect to the world in a way that uh, tra- works for transformation and change, whereas hmm. these, you know, starchy, conservative, uh, uh, <laughs> scholars <laughs> uh, they are insisting on not the change you know they yeah. want to keep it the way it was they they are maybe students of Karl Barth or maybe even mm. Rudolf Bultmann and okay. they are dreaming of that and in the meantime it, ha- it has passed 40 years and so they still are hanging on to the past and that's okay. the challenge how to be open enough to keep moving towards what the world needs
0: what what brought you to the states
1: oh what brought me to the states well i had a then, when I found my grounding after I was kind of in shock at the University of Mainz, I discovered that there is a program where uh, German-speaking theology students can go to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and study there for a year. And I did that. and there I discovered how much fun these American professors are. They actually oh. are joking in the classroom and <laughs> they actually want to talk <laughs> to you.
0: this is this is so stereotypical. <laughs> like we think of Germans as like no fun and well, like well, oh. it's
1: true for theology <laughs> for some exceptions, but some truth to it, so I thought I want to do more of that. Plus, yeah. I wanted to study more of feminist liberation theologies, and okay. the Jewish-Christian dialogue was very important to my theological yeah. development. So when I came back from Jerusalem, I discovered that there's a um, exchange, not a scholarship program from the c- uh, World Council of Churches oh. that br- that you can apply to, and then you know. God have mercy on you where you end up. But (laughs) I ended up at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and at the time, the... Center of feminist uh, liberation theologies. There's black theology. That was the beginnings of uh, queer theology. Uh, the Jewish theological seminaries across the street. So that's what I did. I thought I come for one year. The program was for one year
0: and you, one year. You have several degrees from Union now. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. How, uh, how long were you in Union for?
1: I started there in fall 1990, and my PhD I got in 97.
0: Okay. There you go. There you go. Did you fall in love with New York? Had you ever been there before?
1: I had never been there before, but I consider myself to be a New Yorker in the American by having grown up in the United States in New York.
0: What, it, what does it mean to be a New Yorker?
1: It means to be a Yankee in the South. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Once again, welcome to Texas, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, welcome to Dallas proper.
0: Dallas proper. Do you have dual citizenship? I have
1: dual citizenship since 2010.
0: Is there anything that you miss about Germany? Uh, just I mean, you said you're di- diaspora German, so I'm a, Diras- yeah. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that, that well, there seems to be like a a reason why you use that term and it, besides? It, it,
1: well, to help myself <laughs> because it makes sense um, to own who you are, yeah. or who you identified with, right. and to make clear that I'm coming from a particular social location, like mm-hmm. everybody else, and. You know, so if you think that I'm kind of direct and you are not used to it, so yeah, pu- put, it, put it to my German heritage.
0: In your experience with uh, reading scripture from a German perspective versus how the Americans do it, do you find that they're vastly different or they're similar? You, you know, mean
1: uh, culturally? Culturally, In the public yeah. discourse, well, this country has a heavy-handedness on religious fundamentalism as I always like to say, I mean, it's Christian fundamentalism. Chri- fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism in the last 20 years or so s- has come to the forefront of our consciousness. It's not a particular limitation to Christianity. Other religious traditions have it also. All that we can name that are the big religious traditions have the problem of fundamentalism. And and so this literalism with Uh, Bible meanings is a real problem. It's a lot of fun as a Bible scholar to bring students, make them aware about this problem that they assume and then to open their eyes that there's more than either what I call PPS hermeneutics, (laughs) the privatized, personalized, sentimentalized hermeneutics that seeks individual salvation, how can I be saved? Does God love me? That kind of thing. Or, on the other hand, the historical hermeneutics that uh, reduces biblical meanings to, did it really happen? That there is more than that. And actually, English-speaking scholarship is pretty advanced in this regard. Uh, Yeah.
0: Uh, in my experience with a lot of biblical scholars and biblical studies, it, it seems like there's a lot of atheists who study the scripture, but it's kind of more of the historical. And I asked uh, my my mentor at Boston College, who is also my advisor, uh, Daniel Harrington, th- this question of why is this why like the one area it seems to be in in like these divinity schools, these biblical scholars, is that these people who don't even b- believe any of this stuff. W- w- do you have an answer in terms of like? Oh
1: yeah, I I, I actually have also even written on this. It's complicated mess. Uh, it is related, to, I would the way I trace the lineage to resistance to Nazi Germany because, at least in Hebrew Bible studies, the H- Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rath R.A.D. was very influential and um, insisted on historical criticism at a time when German Nazi theology contextualized itself in German mythological traditions. And so historical criticism provided resistance to that kind of Nazi ideology hmm. in that context. But then the con- when, when the w- war in the Nazi time was over... Gerd von Rath became a professor, I mean, he was already professor before, but then he uh, really gained renown and had so many students who all followed in his footsteps, and they all forgot that he developed his historical criticism emphasis. The way he did it is something very particular about it. Could be, or should be, in my view, should be understood as a um, uh, resistance to the Nazi ideology. They cut that away, and adhered to historical criticism and because Gerd von Rath was such an influential Hebrew Bible scholar, German scholarship of that generation, it spread even to the United States because at the time all the serious Bible scholars and theologians, they didn't stay in the United States. They went to German-speaking countries to study German theology Mm. and in that way they learned about this kind of emphasis. So it's now a status symbol. It's a status quo method and it's a status symbol. It's also an exclusionary practice and we have forgotten that it comes from a particular social location. We have universalized that method as an objective approach to reading the Bible, often in resistance to Christian fundamentalism Mm -hmm. because they are usually shocked out of their minds (laughs) when they are introduced to historic criticism and realizing that maybe Jesus didn't say this or that. So nowadays we have our own struggles to contextualize Bible readings and there are some great uh, scholars out there who do that, and they all right in English for the most part.
0: This kind of brings up a next question. You mentioned that sacred texts are inherently ambiguous, flexible, and elastic,
1: and opaque. I recently uh-huh. added oh, opaque. you added a fourth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> different, different from popular opinion. You you mentioned that why as maybe as Americans or and some Americans but not all, but like why is that the exact opposite? Why is it so hard to treat sacred text as this more ambiguous and flexible text?
1: Uh, these are different questions. I mean, okay. uh, the um, uh, all-sacred text inherently ambiguous, elastic, flexible, and opaque is one thing. That's one declaration that describes a fact, if I may use this word as a post-postmodern, post-post-modern. exegete. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um because they are. I mean, right, if yeah. you if you read the uh, Hebrew Bible in the original languages, then you see, and even with the manuscript traditions that we have, that there are multiple ways of translation and multiple ways of reading, even the same, presumably the same verse. And in fact, if you go to the commentary literature, you see that people have, over the centuries, interpreted these passages, the same verse, in different ways. So it's already, it's a it's a fact that we have read the text in, in various ways. So why is that? Well, because the text allows it. It's a sacred text. If the sacred text is just one and one is two, we would be done. We, it would not be interesting anymore. I think the rabbinic tradition knows this very well without idolizing anything here, that discussion and questioning is essential to spiritual, intellectual, political development. And, and so we sharpen our understanding of the world when we read these sacred texts that are inherently ambiguous, flexible, elastic, and opaque. <laughs> now the question is, why have we forgotten this? Why is there this insistence or, on the literalism? Or, or, or,
0: right? or why is is it not more... We don't auto- automatically go to that, considering we're so far from the text. You just think it must be more inherent to do that than to tend to literally take it. Does that make sense?
1: Well, but people know a little about it, I would say. you know, Even the most secular German friend, I could imagine, would have assumptions of what the Bible mm, means. Okay. Maybe so, not one of these unknown passages, but right. if we go to the Eve and Adam story, I think it would pop out immediately <laughs> what it means. Because it's still strangely enough deeply ingrained in our cultures and so um even though we have never studied the bible and read the bible it still means that we think we know what it means Mm. It gives maybe a certain certainty or it's a safety net and so when you have religiously committed people they usually are not open to explorations and they want to know for sure what something means so it can be scary and i'm trying not to scare anybody (laughs) in my classes
0: (coughs) do you um, get, Do you get a lot of pushback
1: certainly i I can remember a few undergraduate students who felt very upset about it who didn't want to allow a critical mm. discourse on religion right. and I couldn't help myself that this is I think what one has to do and the graduate students I think it's about relationship I mean there will always be some disgruntled somebody, but right. I think i I have gotten pretty good by now to. Uh, trying to be in relationships so that the ideas don't threaten and therefore i don't threaten yeah okay so to welcome people into the exploration process
0: one of the one of the things you 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 have researched and you've written about a lot is actually a very controversial topic is about rape and i found that incredibly intriguing in the sense of in the in the you know what does this speak in terms of the old testament so it had to be thinking about how much does rape show up in the, the Hebrew scriptures and what does that mean theologically and like how did you question?
1: Well as you know that the second feminist movement has brought made public the topic of sexual violence for the first time basically in human history. We, I, I do assume even as a post-postmodern theologian that Sexual violence is not just a recent invention, but that has been going on for a long time. time. But for a long time, nobody talked about it. Uh, Only Susan Brown Miller in 1975 wrote a book called Against Our Will that scandalized the American public at the time because she wrote about a topic that was silenced. Now... When I started working on the topic of rape, this was now in the mid-90s, so this is like 20 years after Susan Brown wrote her book, feminists had already talked a great deal about sexual violence, but in the 90s, nobody really was talking about it anymore kind of interesting and I was looking for a dissertation topic and one evening I was sitting in a car at uh, 121st street at the red light and suddenly I had this idea oh <laughs> I should really work on Genesis 34 and uh, bring the rape discussion from feminist discourse into the analysis and that's actually what I did and the topic at the time I didn't want to be an essentialist you know mm. because postmodernism was in its heydays and essentialism was definitely one of the big sins that you could commit. So it was uh, important to find a way where you don't essentialize a topic. But at the same time, it's kind of hard because once you open your eyes to the topic, it's sort of like everywhere. And and uh, you see reports about this problem in all kinds of countries and places and institutions. It seems to be everywhere. And and so I, f- I started out focusing only on Genesis 34, the rape of Dinah, but then I taught a course on rape and religion in when I was teaching at a college and I realized I need a book with all the texts uh, on the in on rape in the, bi- in the in the Hebrew Bible and I couldn't find one there were good books on sexual violence in uh, biblical narratives and the prophetic literature but they were all scattered around so I set out to write this book and I my goal was to cover all texts on rape, but that didn't work out. (laughs) Uh, There are many that are not included in Sacred Witness, Ah, and I just discovered one in my last course when we were reading um, about Noah and his sons, and that the Queer Bible Commentary reads it in a very interesting way, which allows for the possibility at least, the ambiguity that that text uh, in the tent might be another male-on-male rape. Now, I have a male-on-male rape chapter in Sacred Witness. It's chapter 6, but that text is not included. Mm. So there are many, many texts on rape and sexual violence in the Hebrew Bible. The question is, do we uh, hermeneutically agree that we can study the Bible this way and there is some contestation going on in this regard?
0: How do you make sense uh theologically i guess with this like all these events that are happening in the old testament where the rape is obviously a part of that and what does that say about it, god and then the community of the israelites and it's well a- i
1: give you the answer in my title right it's a sacred <laughs> witness the question is rather in my view why have we not read the bible in this way for two thousand long years
0: it's a, a, I have no idea, yeah. Ah, that's the sort <laughs> of,
1: I can tell you an answer that I have. It's because we're living in a very heteronormative, antrocentric culture and society and mindset, and that mindset doesn't talk about these things, even though they might go on. But we all know that we need to name things for it to become uh, a reality, you know, in quotation marks, so that we can talk about it, we can recognize the thing. And that happened only with the feminist movement in this particular issue. So I'm very grateful to, uh, we owe it to our foremothers and our strong feminist scholars who were bold to make uh, a fuss about sexual violence.
0: What does it mean to perform feminist hermeneutics? I mean, in, in a way.
1: Well, it means that you're reading biblical texts in my case, in order to transform the world towards gender justice in its intersectional manifestations, because we know very well that we cannot essentialize a woman. Mm. Uh, There are many different kinds of women, and we also know that men have a gender. But we started from a point of heteronormative, antrocentric um, hegemony, and so our thinking was very much shaped by that Lens. Um, by that lens. Okay, yeah, right. this is
0: also okay. So you you're kind of restoring a, a new lens, or at least recognizing this is all in, in, entrenched in the which you just those three th- three words you used, and now you're kind of reading it in a new way that kind of looks at it to, with new new eyes. For yeah,
1: it's it's. Um... You know, I mean, much could be said about it. And one of the feminist uh, theologian who has really said a lot about it and keeps saying a lot about it is Elizabeth Schussler fiorenza Uh, Absolutely. And and she she has created all this conceptual discourse on how to talk about feminism in a non-essentializing way that takes account of the differences among um, people who perform as male and female and beyond in many other kinds of manifestations. So the thing gets complicated, but it's also the fun of it because then you suddenly become able to see the world in ways you didn't even imagine. <laughs> you know, this was what I originally liked about my theological studies at my gymnasium. To suddenly, you know, you have this illumination. Wow, this is a big world. And suddenly I understand what's really going on. And it can be so exciting to have this, aha moment, and that's what feminism is about. Of course, then we just don't want to stay with the aha moment. We also want to change things to bring in justice, which is not equality only. I'm not a liberal feminist in that sense.
0: Okay. There's a lot of gender issues right now in the political sphere. In terms of feminist uh, hermeneutics and understanding gender theory, what do you think that has to offer into these conversations
1: I don't want to prioritize one structure of domination over against another. I think
0: so. Opening up the conversation.
1: Yes, open up. Uh, but for me, the lens of gender is uh, a critical analysis of gender. We are also very much illiterate about this. It's um, a
0: very. It's a, It seems like it's not like a young field. It just seems like I just uh, like there is there isn't a lot about it, or we're just kind of starting to bloom in a way. Gender studies and understanding what that means.
1: Well, it has been going on for now fifty years. Right. Right. So Sorry it's I half a century. It's There you go. This, yeah. this is, there's, there are <laughs> shelves, you know, shelves I in need the to, library. I need to see
0: these shelves. I need to start. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
1: but, you know, for one reason, for instance, why I decided to teach a course on queer Bible hermeneutics and not on feminist Bible hermeneutics is because I thought it would pull in more interest. Mm-hmm. I was a little worried if feminist biblical hermeneutics would get the same... Um, resonance among the student body. And I spoke with my very students about this, and they agreed that they thought queer is more attractive to them than feminism, although some people are also worried signing up for a course with queer because of the kind of ongoing repression of uh, queer discourse and queer people and actions in religious circles, such as this Perkins School of Theology is a United Methodist-affiliated. So if you want to be ordained in the UMC, people feel conflicted sometimes. Some are very bold, and they come to this course, which I appreciate <laughs> greatly. But uh, all this to say that, um, of course, feminism um, of the second movement, and we had a first movement in the 19th century, and feminists before, even in the Middle Ages, they were feminists. Some say in the Bible they're feminists. has started this conversation about gender as a structure of domination in its various manifestations. And so when we now examine, we have uh, masculinity studies, we have queer studies, we have trans studies, you know, this is all related to each other. It's not exclusionary, it's it's not, we focus maybe more on trans issues right now because of the particular political situation in particular states in the united states right but this is also that brings up uh, maybe certain tv shows bring attention to certain issues more than others and then we of course also always have to ask ourselves why is one topic now more pronounced than another
0: so this idea i I, you keep coming up to this idea of domination of one or the other. i i think this is starting to resonate with this idea of Maybe you know exclusivism, or Listen. it's just—it's like you're almost a more oh you
1: know, intersectionality. Yeah, 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 yeah. In its various manifestations, I mean, we have ver- all kinds of structures of domination in in, in their various manifestations related to gender.
0: In a, in a way, uh, it, just being conscious of that and, and and doing scholarship in that way, not only the academy but the you know the society at large.
1: Yes, and then to communicate it to the outside world, which is very difficult, because these things are not really articulated, and so people don't have many um, connections to it, which makes it very hard. You can't have like a, a one minute explanation because people don't know in the one minute what you said.
0: Right i want to switch gears a little bit to uh, teaching you're almost done with another semester congratulations by the way i know you have lots of grading how would you describe your teaching pedagogy
1: well this is interesting Uh, maybe you need to interview some students about this as well (laughs) but um, i would say i'm a very interactive teacher because i would like to hear what everybody has to say and my classes are not big enough that i just have to stand in front of 200 people yes and you know i just am just in in the shadow in the front and they are way back up somebody's sitting we have a very interactive uh, engagement and uh, i try to ensure that nobody's hiding and that you know nobody needs to agree with me but i want to have I, i want them to know the argument that is made In the readings that we have under Mm. consideration and be able to talk about this in an intelligent way. And you can disagree at all times. I think I'm kind of democratically raised in this way. I myself like to have discussions and conversations and feedback when I'm learning something. So that's how I look at it. But I probably am also demanding... Demanding, like, yeah, what, I think and, that's and what,
0: good. Just in, in, like the amount of work, or like just definitely.
1: Uh, I mean, then <laughs> of course the question is, do I, I? I, you know, I have a lot of readings in my classes, right, right. but there is a lot to be read. I mean, come on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I had one graduate class that had over a thousand pages a week, and I, oh. I read, I read every single word. Like, okay, it you're, was very the, you're the stellar student then. No, that doesn't mean I was good at the class. It was just I was super like into the, the topic. It was a doctoral class, so it, and I, I understood. I learned how to, to read... In such a way that was officially maybe quicker, take more notes. So it, it even though more cur- it was a bigger load, mm-hmm. you could you could take it. It's a, a skill and essential yes, a w- to kind of bring in definitely
1: True. You know how to read. I mean, sometimes you know you just don't have to read the entire book anymore <laughs> to know what the argument is if you know how to read it.
0: Did you when you yourself were a your student did you have professors who did this interactive work or is this yes? Yes,
1: and in in Jerusalem and then of course at Union.
0: So this is something that y- has inspired you along the way to kind of mold this pedagogy of that. and
1: I grew. Up with it in in my schooling because the schooling that I attended in Germany, these I had all very young teachers in high school and in elementary school and middle school, and that's why university in Germany was such a shock because everybody, all these professors, it was old <laughs> and starchy. Well, but there were a few others. But this was a dominant right, thing, right. very different from the schooling until you go to university. We have a slightly different system in Germany, so. We don't need to go into this, but it's a it's a big difference. And so, uh, in United States, I I mean, I taught at college level as well. Um, It's very much the pedagogy has changed, where engagement of students, active uh, learning, is very much promoted.
0: Right with active learning, these are what is like the most challenging you find every semester to Uh for as as a professor.
1: To, uh, what to do with the unprepared students, right? Who think to show up and be there is fine. I appreciate you came, but then now you haven't read, so this makes it difficult. <laughs> the <laughs>
0: classic, the classic of uh, you didn't, d- you didn't come in prepared, d- did the homework or the reading, whatever. Yeah,
1: because then if you do group work, for instance, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you focus, uh, you try to become uh, Elizabeth schussler Fiorenza, and you try to become Gerhard von raden right. you try to become. John Bright. Uh, It's very hard to do this when you don't know what he or she said in the readings.
0: So so now that we're kind of speaking on advice and you gave a really nice point on what to do and maybe help with the reading, do you have any advice for young scholars, professors who may starting out who maybe are having issues finding their voice or uh, you can add also like research and writing, those who are entering the field?
1: Yeah, I think it's very important that you reach out and that you make a lot of connections. I recently talked with somebody about it, but I would say any job that I ever got, I got a bunch of them. I always knew somebody who who knew me, who knew somebody. That might be different for other people, but in my own career, this is always how it was. So it's very important to develop your extroverted nature and go to conferences and make connections and be yourself I mean I believe in the calling ca- concept it's a very nice one in German it's called Berufung can be a little cheesy but you, you can't fake it I think and if you fake it then maybe you will be unhappy in the long run so my big advice would be just try to be, keep your integrity intact and uh, try to find your voice this way
0: is there anything that you're currently working on that may be coming out in the future in terms of publication or, or uh, just topics and whatnot?
1: Well, I have two books coming out. One is my third volume. I'm It's the third volume of a three-volume series, so I'm elated. <laughs> I just this morning got an email from the publisher telling me they're moving the manuscript uh, that I have seen three proofs of uh, to press and so it will come out I guess in early fall. It's the Feminist Interpretation of the Hebrew Bible in Retrospect, Volume 3 on Methods. Wow. And it's a big. It's the biggest one of the three of them, but the whole project is, is then finished. And so it's kind of amazing that this is happening. And then um, another book comes out that I co-edited with my colleague from Argentina, Pablo Andinach, on La Violencia and the Hebrew Bible. And that's also a great volume. But these are anthologies. I'm working on a sociology of biblical hermeneutics these days. It's going to be my next monograph, but I'm working on it.
0: Fantastic. What's your favorite Hebrew Bible text?
1: Oh, what's my favorite Hebrew Bible if, text? Yeah,
0: like kind of the, one of those things where if you had to go on an island and you had to choose one of them from the rest, what would you would you choose? In the Hebrew Bible? mm mm-hmm.
1: Oh, <laughs> I know these are always hard questions. that's I should have known before, I think <laughs> I can't choose one text alone. No, I take the whole thing.
0: Do you know, the, it, it, there's nothing you gravitate more than others, or well, maybe a whole collection of sort like you know, like the prophets or the
1: I definitely like narratives, okay. Um, uh, but I have worked with poetry, but I like the narratives uh, because I grew up with the uh, Grimm's fairy tales, so I like stories <laughs> like that.
0: What are those again? Like, can you explain? I have. I'm trying to, rem- I think I remember what those are, but I don't the know. The Grimm fairy tales, yeah, yeah. you don't know them? Oh, my oh, God. This is sad, I know. I need, I, oh, I this t- is just uh, so many. Uh, the,
1: the the Emperor Without Clothes, you don't know that uh, okay, story? okay, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't know, know now if this is particularly from Grimm, but it's a fairy tale oh, okay. that's very famous. Or the king uh, who had three beautiful daughters, and they all ended up in some castle incarcerated, and there was the prince who was saving only one of them. You know, like all these fairy tales. Yeah, right,
0: right potter that's
1: <laughs> that's not a fairy tale that's a recent invention right um but it's a it's it's like this is like about magicians
0: right no no i mean uh, in harry potter they talk about the the fairy tales growing up at, like with, and in england and oh okay like the Grimm fairy tales yes there's a like connection so that's that's where the light goes on for me i see
1: okay <laughs> good, good. i a, highly recommend the grimm's fairy tales not to sure believe that. them that's not <laughs> about believe but to read them metaphorically
0: metaphorically okay well that's a It's a good plug in itself for that. Okay, so I'm now now ready for we do we have these like five fun questions that you can answer any way you want, and they're they're meant to be fun and 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 less serious. Although it seems you as you know, like the last forty minutes haven't been like you know hopefully too much of a serious conversation.
1: I had fun. (laughs) (laughs) What,
0: What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song?
1: Anything related with father in it, I reject.
0: There we go. This look, this is a very original answer, right? Like uh it speaks entirely to your to your narrative, which is great. There's a lot of songs like that. <sighs> it's, it's it's definitely it uh, like me you said nuts. a dominance, right? Like, yeah do- <laughs> uh Game of Thrones has come out. For for millennials, this is kind of like a show we all kind of watch. Is there anything in pop culture that you're kind of consuming? I only
1: have an old-fashioned kind of obsession right now, which started with my queer Bible hermeneutics in the spring semester because I signed one episode in Star Trek, The Next Generation, which which deals with gender ambiguities. And I hadn't watched Star Trek in is that, years is, does that deal with
0: like the inner with inner Captain
1: wish- Picard and Data yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so what happened is now every evening I can't <laughs> wait to see my uh, new uh, episode from Star Trek The Next Generation what I did is I watched um, season 7 f- onward from that show that I had assigned <sighs> in class now I'm back to episode 1 Oh uh, yeah. And I'm I've never seen it chronologically, so Are
0: you are you officially a Trekkie?
1: I think I'm officially <laughs> to boldly go where no one goes <laughs> before. That's my slogan. Oh
0: my gosh. Talk about the narrative. There there you go. There's like all kinds of stuff of that.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: <laughs> what profession would you have attempted or like to have attempted if you didn't choose uh academia?
1: Classical homeopathy.
0: W- Experiment. <laughs> <laughs> I was like I I I got this. I know what that you is. You have another 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Just briefly.
1: (laughs) Um, Classical homeopathy is a a healing system that is in contrast to allopathy, which is the dominant system. But it's not necessarily in contrast. You can use it um, together. But ultimately, the goal is to rely on classical homeopath. And my wonderful homeopath is in Worms, Germany
0: that is yeah we that would be another whole podcast <laughs> all the all these like these questions that i had just popped off uh, okay so question for it are you team coffee or team tea i brought this question back we americans always choose coffee but since you have a european background i figured maybe dutch
1: first flush
0: <laughs> which, is, which is what is this <laughs> tea tea i was like okay this is terrible yeah, it's okay.
1: a, a Darjeeling is an area in India. That, oh, okay, that makes sense. But, but I also like oolong because when I was in Hong Kong, there, I that too, yeah, yeah. Then I learned about uh, Chinese, and there I have a Chinese tray of tea, and I, so there is,
0: it's really massive to my left. I should have known that answer before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, it's beautiful tea set, by the way. Very nice. Final question: What the uh, what should the title of your biography be? Or to autobi-
1: boldly go where no one has gone before.
0: <laughs> and then, th- wh- then you have a colon. And then, what would be after that?
1: Uh,
0: post-postmodern. Yeah. That, <laughs> <like> uh- <laughs> post-postmodern <laughs> journey into German diasporic. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Post-Holocaust feminist <laughs> theologian.
0: Uh, all, all the fun words to, to add to that. Yes. I can't believe I can't believe like the Star Trek. You have like you've got into a wellspring of so much like culture that is just there for the taking.
1: And just finally maybe I started watching The um, Next Generation when I was a student at Union Seminary. Okay,
0: so there's a little routine. And
1: um, the students were gathering in the community room and the TV was on and I joined and I asked them to please help me to tell me when the show is continuing after the commercial because both blended for me. I couldn't understand the difference between the commercial and the Star Trek show because they're all blended. It's all gobbledygook, all in English.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so I've come a long, long way. You, we could end on that. You've, you've definitely, now you can d- watch all the seasons. Uh, this has been a great pleasure for me. Thank you so much for taking time out and thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.